You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely partner, Dr. Jess. Hey, hey, how's it going? I'm in a great mood. You're in a good one. Yeah, yeah, I'm in a good mood. Why do you sound surprised? I don't know. We're going to be talking about ADHD and its effects on sex and relationships today. Should be very interesting. Yes. Now, before we get to that, I want to talk about a topic we were talking about this morning on Global TV's The Morning Show. So for folks who are not Canadian, that's one of our national morning shows. And a viewer wrote in with a query. It says, I checked my girlfriend's DMs when she left her phone unlocked, and I can see she's chatting with her ex in a flirty way. Should I bring it up? That's a that's a interesting question. Do you check my DMs? I don't check your DMs. I don't really feel like I need to. You, you tell me all about them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see a picture? I'm like, no. I don't check most of my DMs, so True. there True. you go. Well, it's it's interesting because this person is in this position where if they bring it up, their partner is probably going to be more focused on the anger they're feeling over them having checked their phone, so much so that they might be unwilling to even listen at all because they might feel their trust and their privacy has been violated. They get so caught up in the other person's misstep that I think they might refuse to even begin to address their own behavior. So I guess we should start with, we know it's not a good idea to check our partner's DMs. Yeah, I agree. You know, I was working on your computer yesterday. Were you? Yes, because my laptop, as we know, I really need a new laptop. I've needed a new laptop for a very long time. It's been at least a year. I think it's been close to two to three years. And I refuse to go get a new one because I'm not happy with the new Macs and their lack of ports. It hasn't been a year or two. Your computer is like six years old, Uh isn't it? Uh Uh-huh. In the last year or two, you've wanted to change it out. It does not look healthy. Like it looks upset. I don't sick. need to see the letters on my keyboard in order to type. They're all worn out. Surprise I have no E, no S, no D. Anyhow, I was using Brandon's computer because I had a huge document that wouldn't load on mine. And yes, I will go get a new laptop in the next month. I make a promise to everybody. And while I'm using your laptop, all of your messages are popping up. All of your calendar invites are popping up. I think even your email was popping up. And of course, I'm always curious. And if something makes me curious, I've kind of made a commitment to myself that I'll ask you about it. Or if something makes me uncomfortable, I'd rather come and tell you, hey, I'm feeling motivated to snoop and I don't want to do that. So let me address what I'm feeling or what's concerning me. So what are you hoping? I guess the question is, what are you hoping to achieve or accomplish by looking at my DMs? Is it I would, I would imagine you want to feel better because you didn't find anything. But then how would you feel about snooping behind my back mm-hmm. and f- reading my messages? On the flip side, I think there is some privacy. I probably am going back on what I've said in the past. But I also think that there's a degree of privacy that I should be afforded where you don't need to look at my messages. But the truth is, I don't really care. And that's the way I've gone about things. Like, if you want, you can use my computer, you have access to my email, you have access to all my messages because 
I don't have anything to hide. And if you did need to ask me something, I'd be happy to have a discussion about it. Well, I guess that transparency is also why I would never read your messages. And so I love that you bring up privacy because people absolutely have a right to privacy. And this morning we were talking about the line or the distinction between privacy and secrecy. So privacy being this is my space, my personal message box, please respect it. And secrecy being I'm going to do things in here that if you found out about would affect our relationship or, you know, am I doing something in my DMs that violates the terms of our relationship? And, you know, I I always want to remind people, and I think I say this enough that y'all should know that, you know, there is no one right way. I don't claim to have all the answers. And we're talking about not going into one another's DMs, but this person has already done it. That's fine. What's done is done. And so now you have to decide, you know, do you want to come clean? And let them know that in a moment of insecurity or in a moment of curiosity or in a moment of of poor judgment and intrigue, you check their phone and now you're feeling even worse (laughs) because you feel guilty, but also you feel uncomfortable with what you saw and really be vulnerable and honest honest and be prepared to acknowledge your own wrongdoing because I think this might be disarming to your partner if you can say, listen, I screwed up. I shouldn't have done this. I apologize. Let's address this first. And then I also want to talk about what I saw because I'm uncomfortable with this. I'm not trying to control your behavior. Um, I'm just telling you how I feel. And so I, I, I would love to have the openness or the space in a relationship to come clean and say this is what happened. But I also know that doesn't exist for everyone. So the, the other alternative is that you don't come clean, but you still ask questions about this relationship with their ex. You know, are you in touch with them? Um, What's going on? And I think this can still be an important conversation about your feelings, but it's going to be limited since you won't actually be acknowledging your own missteps. I don't know what the best case scenario is, is that you snoop in somebody's inbox and you don't find anything. So yeah, you feel good, but then you've violated somebody else's privacy. So now you're actually holding a secret in (laughs) on the alternative is you do find something and you need to address it with your partner. How do you then bring that up in a conversation? So going back to your point, I think it all starts a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Like you have that, you ask that question, I'm feeling uncomfortable or, you know, how do you feel? How would you feel if I looked in your inbox? Mm -hmm. How about starting there? Yeah, I think, I really think that the moment you admit you've done something wrong, the moment you kind of utter those mea culpa words, however you decide to articulate them, I think it changes the relationship and in a positive way, even if you're talking about something negative. So I hope you feel like you have the space to, I mean, maybe come clean isn't a great word in terms of, you know, it's not that you're dirty or anything like that, but to to be honest, to be upfront and say, okay, I did this, I regret doing this. Also, we need to talk about something because maybe you haven't been being honest with me. Also, the power of vulnerability. When somebody comes to you and says, I'm uncomfortable, this is how I feel. For me, if you were to come and approach me and tell me that, I, I would immediately want to assure you that everything's okay. So, Whereas if you came at me and said, why are you still in touch with your ex? You said you weren't. And you come at me accusatory, you're going to get a different response. Moving on to the heart of today's topic. ADHD and its effects on your sex life and your relationship. Today we are joined by psychologist and sex therapist Dr. Ari Tuckman, who has written several books and the latest is ADHD After Dark, Better Sex Life, Better Relationship. Thanks for being here with us. 
I am super psyched to be here. Now, what led you into ADHD research and specifically research around how it affects intimate relationships? So I've been working with clients with ADHD and writing books and speaking all over the place, pretty much anyone who would listen, for like 20 years now. But really the last five or so years, I've gotten more and more interested in the relationship impacts of ADHD and specifically the sexual impacts and how that all fits together. And that, you know, adults with ADHD are still at this time of 2019, something of an underrepresented, you know, undertreated population, underdiagnosed. It was really true 20 years ago when I first started. It's gotten better, but we're not great yet. Um, but this part of sexuality has been like really ignored. And it's such an important part of relationships. And relationships is such an important part of our overall life satisfaction that I kind of felt like we're doing this big disservice in the field of ignoring this kind of powerful point of intervention to help couples with one ADHD partner just like be happier and more satisfied in their relationship and life overall. And what is ADHD? What does it look like in adults? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, when most people think about ADHD, they think of like that stereotypically hyperactive boy. And that is some people with ADHD, but there's also folks who don't have that hyperactive part often girls are less hyperactive, <clears throat> but also adults are just always gonna be less hyperactive than kids. But we'll have more of the sort of inattentive symptoms, which is sometimes called ADD, attention deficit disorder. Technically it's ADHD inattentive type. But you know, these are folks who struggle with things like time management, getting things done. Um, they're disorganized, they tend to run late, they lose things, they misplace stuff, they forget things big procrastinators. So like they know what to do, but they don't consistently do what they know, which, you know, you can certainly see how that would impact a student at school. <clears throat> you can see how that would impact an adult in the workplace, but you could very much also see how that would impact a relationship if you're looking to your partner for some sense of consistency that, you know, like you're going to kind of do what you said you were going to do. And if you're not doing it, God damn it, then do I have to do it? Like, why do I always have to be the one to do it? And then that kind of chase dynamic ensues, which is pretty much a you know bad time for one and all. Like, nobody is enjoying that sort of a dynamic. So um, understanding ADHD, understanding that's what it is, getting some, you know, effective treatment, couples working, you know, the partners working together on it, things get a whole lot better and they get themselves out of that really unhappy chase dynamic. Dr. Tuckman, you mentioned all of those symptoms, like being disorganized, time management, but I mean, we all go through those at some point. Yep. So is it something that's prolonged over the course of, you know, longer than three, six, 12 months? Right. And that's an excellent question because, you know, you're absolutely right. In some ways, the symptoms of ADHD are just normal you know, imperfections of all of us, but more so. So, you know, like we all have trouble getting somewhere on time, you know, sometimes, like once in a while you might be late to things. But by contrast, someone with ADHD has always struggled with being late. And, you know, to a point where, I don't know, like they're getting written up at work for it. Now, that's a whole nother level. You know, it's one thing to be a little bit annoying to your friends, 
But if you're getting written up at work, or at least you're getting the you know evil eye from your boss when yet again you're showing up 10 minutes or 20 minutes late, that becomes a problem in your life. That, that'll affect potentially your promotions at work and your lifetime earnings and things like that. So, um, so for folks with ADHD, it's the same old stuff as anyone, but just much more so across the lifespan and across multiple settings. So at this job, but also at that job, at school, but also with friends, you know, at home, et cetera. So it really kind of like it's always there with them. So your latest book, you talk about ADHD in adults and intimate relationships. And I'm thinking about all of these symptoms and applying them to an intimate setting. So somebody disorganized or they're showing up late for sex. But what does it look like in the in the realm of sex and relationships? I think I like it when you show up late <laughs> yeah, for yeah. sex. I'll get, like I'll get most rushed. of it done and then <laughs> <Right>. you show <laughs> up. <laughs> yeah, just for the grand finale. It, it works so. out. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, and that's the thing is that, you know, when I looked at, I based on some survey research I did, and I asked respondents, here are 25 potential barriers to a better sex life. Which ones of these are the biggest for you? And, you know, the biggest barriers had to do with either not enough time or energy for sex or too many bad feelings. And, you know, if you think about people who get distracted, they get off task, they have trouble getting things done, they procrastinate, that spills into your sex life if, you know, by the time you finally get around to getting into bed together, assuming you're mostly having sex at night, um, you know, one of the partners is already asleep. And, or there's this kind of imbalanced workload, particularly if it's the guy with ADHD and the woman's taking up the slack, she's too angry at him to have sex. It's like, I had to clean up all the kitchen and I had to get the kids into bed and now you want me to have sex with you? You know, so, so sex becomes like that ultimate place where it all spills out. You know, all that sort of inefficiency, the negative feelings that come from it. And then the couple is just not getting together in that way, which means then that they're robbed of the benefits of that good sexual connection. And so when I think about uh, someone with ADHD, in addition to not getting to the sex, does it affect the physical act of sex? For example, do they have more difficulty staying in the moment, being mindful? Right. Yeah, it's a good question. So to some extent, they do, and a bit more so for women than for men, and women in general more so than men in general. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, what was really interesting to me is, and this was not a thing I could have predicted, but it totally makes sense after the fact when you know it, is when I looked at the survey questions that I asked, and I asked, you know, 75 questions by the time you add in like the 25 potential barriers and all the sub questions, um, I pulled out 12 questions that pretty much spoke to what I call sexual eagerness. So that's some obvious things like what is your desired sexual frequency? How often do you look at porn? How do you feel about your porn use, your partner's porn use? How kinky would you say you are? Um, How interested would you be in consensual non-monogamy, history of, of infidelity, et cetera, et cetera. So when I took all those 12 questions, the folks with ADHD, keeping gender, you know, taking gender into account, rated themselves higher on 10 out of 12 of those, and they tied on the other two. So men with ADHD compared to men without, women with ADHD compared to women without. So 
folks with ADHD are more in touch with their sex drive, basically, is one of the ways of sort of thinking about it. Um, or another way of sort of thinking about it is that they get, just as folks with ADHD get more pulled by other distractions in the world around them, other distractions from within their own head, they're also more pulled by sexual stimuli or thoughts. So that can be a good thing in a relationship. You know, long-term relationships, it's hard to keep that spark alive. Somebody's got to be the one to do it. At least one person has to be. And, you know, if that person with ADHD brings more, brings sexuality a bit more to the forefront, that can be a real positive in the relationship if those are good experiences together. On the other hand, if their partner's fed up or frustrated or not interested, then that desire discrepancy can then really be a struggle and a challenge for them to navigate because it becomes yet another discontent between them. That's a really interesting finding around sexual eagerness. And when we look at sexual behavior profiles, uh, I don't think we tend to look at it along lines of diagnosis like ADHD. So I hope that I hope you keep doing that research. I hope it gets more widely circulated and published and, and that folks are delving a little bit deeper. Now, it sounds as though you're talking about sex being one thing, and perhaps there's this positive element of higher being higher on a sexual eagerness scale, but the relational element, because we aren't always in touch with why we're behaving the way we are, or maybe we don't understand why our partner is inconsistent or doesn't follow through, those behavioral right. elements have to really um, pose specific challenges to the relationship. So what do you find in the relationship dynamic besides asides from a lack of consistency or being late or not following through, what else do you see arises in relationships when one partner has ADHD? Right. And I think, to, first of all, you're asking the question in the right way, right? Because it's not just what does ADHD, how does ADHD impact the person who has it, but it's how does, it, how does that behavior impact their partner? And then how does their partner's response circle back around to impact the partner with ADHD? And around and around we go in any uh -huh. relationship. So, <clears throat> so, you know, this kind of stereotypical couple is it's the guy with ADHD, although there are just as many women with ADHD. But like the stereotypical dynamic is the guy tends to drop the ball. He doesn't follow through as much as he would like to. Um, he's not being passive aggressive. He's not a selfish bastard. He's just bad at remembering to do things, bad at staying on task. So things aren't getting done. The, you know, if we're talking about straight couples, then the girlfriend or the wife picks up more of the slack. Um, she tends to be more organized, more on top of things, more anxious about things getting done. So in an effort to quell her anxiety, she kind of jumps to and says like, okay, I guess I'll take care of sending out the bills now. Okay, I guess I'll take care of filling out all the kids, you know, school forms and homework. Okay, I guess I'll be the one to run to the supermarket because we don't have any eggs in the fridge for tomorrow. Um, and then she gets more and more kind of burned out and resentful. Then she becomes more kind of controlling and, you know, a bit more kind of micromanaging, a bit more critical, which you can totally understand and empathize with. And yet, then the guy feels like he can never get it right. He's always getting it from his wife. She's never happy, which, again, that makes sense under the circumstances. And it just becomes this kind of like over-functioner, under-functioner kind of dynamic, or another way of, of calling it is kind of a parent-child dynamic, mm -hmm. where the non-ADHD partner is the parent, and the 
you know, ADHD partners yet another child. And the thing is, we don't want to have sex with our kids, you know, like biologically, we are wired to not, most of us, to not find children sexually appealing. So if you got to parent someone, you don't want to have sex with them. And if you've had someone on your back all day, all week, you don't want to have sex with that person either. So as one of my survey respondents put it, she said, um, that parent-child dynamic is a total sex killer. And she's absolutely right. So how do you break that dynamic? Yeah. So the way that you do it, I mean, it's sort of, it's a little bit of both in the sense of understanding ADHD, managing it well, getting on medication if that's warranted, getting the medication adjusted so it does the best it can do, helps the partner with ADHD step up so they become more of a you know, equally functioning peer adult, so to speak, but also for the non-ADHD partner to kind of step back and to pick their battles a bit, to recognize these things are more important, those things are less. So, you know, like I would like for the kitchen to be all cleaned up the night before so we don't have to deal with it in the morning, but you know what? Maybe sometimes it won't be. Like I, I just need to like take a couple deep breaths and not get all worked up about it. So it's kind of finding that balance, and it's it becomes a, a thing of going from being this chase dynamic where one is chasing the other to being more of a let's work on this together. We're back on the same team. We both strive to make ourselves and each other happy in many ways. And if you have that kind of a, a mood in the relationship, then sex becomes that much easier. Right. So you're laying the groundwork. And this sounds to me as though it would apply to couples, even in which one person isn't diagnosed with ADHD, yeah. because this parent-child relationship is one that we hear often from, from couples across the globe. And I like that you're talking about shifts from both sides. So stepping up, but also the other partner stepping back because... Oftentimes I see dissatisfaction in relationships drawn from the fact that you set unilateral standards of expectation and yes. then you're mad when other people don't meet them, right? So I might yes. want the fridge to sparkle, but that might not be a priority to my partner. And then I expect them to meet my expectations when, you know, if I really want the fridge to sparkle, I can sparkle it myself or hire someone to sparkle it. Yeah, exactly. Um, not that they can't do something for me because it's important to me, but that other over-functioning or over-performing partner, that list tends to be very, very long of expectations. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that it becomes a situation where the one partner expects the other to function the way that they do. And if somebody has ADHD, then they probably won't. But even if they don't, like no two people are exactly the same anyway. But they also... It, where it really becomes a problem is when there's this like morality that gets brought in of like, you should want it the way that I want it. And if you don't, that means there's something wrong with you. You know, like that is never going to go over well, you know, regardless of who your partner is. So, you know, so it really is a matter of kind of shifting. I sometimes use, I've sort of stolen this idea from Emily Nagoski, but um, I sometimes use this, this line that, satisfaction is a function of expectations versus experience. And, you know, we can 
strive to change the experience of how clean is the fridge going to be, you know, if let's make it cleaner if that's a thing that's bothering me, or we can change our expectation. You know, like I'm not going to expect you to feel the same way about the fridge. I might still want to ask you. I might feel like I could ask you to pitch in, but, you know, I'm not necessarily going to pin my happiness on how clean the fridge is if I don't want to make that a big battle. Maybe I do, but, but hopefully <laughs> I don't. And I'm curious about conflict as well. So with ADHD, how does this affect the way you respond to conflict? Right. So folks with ADHD, just as they can be more impulsive about doing kind of random things like, I don't know, swiping over to Facebook rather than working on the expense report, let's say, um, they can also be more impulsive in terms of their emotional reaction that they kind of like wear their emotions a little bit more on their sleeve sometimes. And on the one hand, that can make them much more fun to hang out with. Like I have a bunch of friends with ADHD who are great, fun, awesome people. Um, but also when it's not a happy moment of friends hanging out, but when it's instead, you know, couples kind of fighting with each other, they can be even more emotional, which can then drive more emotionality from their partner. And especially if this is one of those kind of arguments that we've been round and round on that, you know, like, here we go again, fighting about, you know, the bedroom is a mess. Then they both sort of jump ahead in terms of their emotional escalation and it becomes that much more kind of heated and less productive. So, you know, so again, finding those ways to work well together and preferably nip stuff in the bud before it becomes this kind of big heated thing. Um, But, you know, medication for ADHD potentially also slows down a bit of that emotional response, Hmm. which, you know, helps both partners then be a bit more kind of cool headed about how to respond to it. They can empathize a bit more, hear each other a bit better, and then actually follow through with what they decided on. And aside from medication, are there specific behavioral tools you teach to clients to, for instance, slow that impulsivity? I do. So, you know, there's the tools and strategies that work best for folks with ADHD are often just good strategies for anybody. It's just some people need them more than others. So, you know, a lot of the work I do with folks with ADHD has to do with, you know, keeping in terms of like getting things done. It has to do with, you know, setting reminders, using a schedule, really making an effort to put everything into the schedule and to check it to, you know, write notes for the things they need to write notes for to not just sort of wing it off the top of their head quite so much. Um, And to really sort of think about the situations that they put themselves into before they get there. You know, because it's sort of like, I don't know, if you're, it's like that old AA thing, you know, like if you don't want to drink, you shouldn't go to the bar. If you're in the bar, it's much more likely you're going to drink. So, you know, resisting the pull of those places before you even start. So, you know, if you know you tend to get stuck on a certain website for too long, don't go there in the first place and don't lie to yourself that like, oh, I'll just, I'm just going to check real quick, just two minutes and then I'm out of here. If you know that like, okay, that, that works out sometimes, but too often it doesn't. So like, let's be honest, don't go there in the first place. So some of it is that kind of more psychology which is not to say that it's just about mindset when it comes to overcoming ADHD, but there is a bit of that in there as well. And is it more difficult to develop these, these coping strategies or tools when you're diagnosed as an adult as opposed to a child because you're, you have to relearn 
or do away right. with those bad habits that have pre-existed for years? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I think there is something to that. I think there's also potentially more bad feeling, more defensiveness, kind of a longer history of failures or at least things not working out as one would hope. So it's easier, I think, to get kind of, I don't know, triggered or, or reactive to certain things rather than being kind of proactive ahead of time. Um, so, but, you know, it's also the sort of irony of ADHD is that as much as it's kind of easy and obvious to say you should really write stuff down and set reminders, especially if you tend to be forgetful, they're also forgetful about stopping <laughs> and actually writing stuff down, which is sort of like the analogy I use is it's kind of like needing your glasses to find your glasses, you know, <laughs> that, that it's, it's obvious advice and they've gotten it lots of times, but if it was as simple as that, then they just would have been done with it because why would you choose to make your life harder if you could make it easier? Now, you've mentioned a few gender differences when it comes to ADHD. Uh, do you see this in adults in relationships? You mentioned that as many women have ADHD as men, is that diagnosed right. at the same rate or estimated at the same rate? Good question. And it is estimated at the same rate. It is not diagnosed at the same rate. That <clears throat> we're still seeing more boys than girls and more men than women being diagnosed. But partially that's because kind of like I've got this line, like you can't find what you're not looking for. And if you're a woman with ADHD who shows up in a therapist, psychiatrist, you know, family doctor's office and complaining about not being able to stay on top of everything, not getting stuff done, being kind of scattered and disorganized, you're much more likely to be diagnosed with anxiety or depression, which could indeed be valid, you know, because being disorganized and scattered, not getting things done is a pretty good reason to feel anxious or depressed. So, you know, they see the anxiety and depression, and then they stop there. And maybe that's the focus of treatment, but they don't look beyond it to see, well, wait a second, you've always been scattered and disorganized. Even when your mood is great, you still have trouble getting stuff done. Maybe there's something else going on here. So, you know, we're, it's getting better with time, but there's still a lot of women who are being diagnosed with other things, other, mostly anxiety and depression, maybe bipolar disorder, rather than ADHD, when that's really the sort of cart that, or the, I don't know, horse that's pulling the cart or whatever. Uh, is that a common dual diagnosis, ADHD and anxiety? It is. It is. Well, that it makes must sense have, when you think about it. Yeah, and such an impact on relationships and expectations and also on, on right. sex and being able to even get in the mood or be in the mood or have an orgasm. Uh, I'd be very yeah. interested in orgasm rates for folks with ADHD. Yeah, so I don't have specific data on that, but you know, more so for women than, than for men and more so the women with ADHD the most, that sort of trouble shifting gears to get into that sexual mood was much more common. Um, and for some of them, just that ability to sort of focus on the pleasure of the moment, to not be distracted and not in a, I'm worrying about, you know, getting yelled at by my boss tomorrow because I didn't hand in that expense report, but just like stuff like, oh, these sheets are kind of scratchy or what's that noise? Or, <laughs> you know, like, oh, wait, did we buy, you know, canned peaches yesterday right. like is your condom random. blue 
Right. Exactly. I'm very distracted by colored condoms. I can't understand like the blue condom. But I feel with all of these things that we're talking about, like I'm sitting here listening to you talk about it and I'm like, man, I couldn't sleep last night. My mind was going a million miles a minute. And I'm like, I don't feel like I have, you know, adult ADHD, but I wonder, is it a part like to diagnose yourself? Does it require almost like the ability to be reflective, to be introspective and have that conversation with your partner or with yourself where it's like, okay, how am I feeling? What am I like, do, is there something going on here? Like that in itself has got to be a difficult thing for most adults to admit to. Would you agree or am I wrong? Yeah, no, I think, you know, I think it goes both ways. I think that there are some people who either kind of psychologically or just sort of defensive about it. Cause like they've had so many people tell them so many times, you know, you're not doing the right thing. Why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? So you understand why they're defensive. Some of it is also, I think is more neurologically based lack of awareness that, you know, sort of simply put, they think they're doing better than they are because they don't remember how often they're not doing well. So like how later, how often are you late? Um, I don't know. I mean, not that bad. And then you, you turn to their spouse or their friend and they're like, dude, you're freaking late all the time. <laughs> like you're an hour late last week. No, I don't think it was. It wasn't an hour. I mean, it might've been a half an hour, you know? So like, so this is why I always offer for a romantic partner to come along to a diagnostic interview. Cause I want to hear what they have to say. Cause they got some things to say. I mean, you know how my wife would have things to say about me and I would certainly have things to say about her. And I'm sure it's the same for you guys. Right. So like our partners have some investment in it and they notice things that we don't notice, but you know, I think it's, it's helpful again to have both people on the same team and to be sort of working together on it. Even if that is with that very first step of diagnosis. You know, I often talk about how you can't diagnose your partner because people will do that. Oh, my partner's a narcissist or my partner right. is this or that. But what do you do if you are concerned that perhaps this is being missed and your partner is missing out on the tools and supports that you both would benefit from? How do you even approach this topic with your partner? You subtly leave Dr. Tuckman's book out <laughs> on the table. Is that is that the answer? Right. And a little handwritten note that says, Addressing ADHD equals more sex, ah. and I actually have, and I got the data to prove it. So that's a true. I got that's a true statement. I mean, I think what you do is, you know, it's kind of like, you know, sales, like selling anyone on anything. You got to appeal to what is their benefit. And I think that the way that you approach it is to say, you know, I've been thinking about this, or I read this article, or I listened to this podcast, or whatever, and I wonder if this is a thing that's that's true for you and here is how it's making your life harder for you but then also here's how it's making my life harder for me and you know if we know that this is the reason then that gives us some different ideas for what to do about it and you know often by that point this is not a new thing ADHD didn't just show up last week you know this has been an ongoing thing so to appeal to how they stand to benefit from it and this may not be a one and done conversation. That's okay. Um, but, you know, it may also be if someone is really resistant to it, <clears throat> then the advice I give the partner is, look, don't rescue them from themselves quite as much. You know, not in an uncaring way, but just in a, look, I'm tired of being resentful about you towards you on this. Like, I'm tired of being angry. I'm tired of being on your case. So, like, these things, that's on you. Now, not important things like, 
our kids are standing by themselves in the dark at the side of the soccer field when everybody else is gone. Probably not that, but you know, things like meeting your friends. Okay. It is no longer my problem whether you, you meet your friends on time, you know, like that's between you and them right. and stepping out so that you become less of the sort of like angry, critical, whatever, and letting them sort of feel some of their own consequences a little bit more. And at that point, they may be a little bit more willing to have that conversation. I think that's really an important insight because when you become an overfunctioner, you base your identity in that so much. And as you yeah. said, that makes you more anxious, more critical, more controlling, and you like yourself less. And that also affects the relationship. Yeah. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the tools you've offered to people. You have a website, adultadhdbook.com. You also write the Sex Matters blog on Psychology Today. Folks will definitely look you up and follow along. If they want to take the very first step, they can go to your website, adultadhdbook.com. But if they want to book an appointment, where do they begin, uh, either with you or with somebody locally? Sure. So, I mean, just sort of reach out. You know, my so from my adultadhdbook.com, you can click over. That's my books and podcast and presenting site. You can click over to my clinical site, which is tuckmanpsych.com. But, you know, if you're here in the States, I would recommend looking at chad.org, C-H-A-D-D.org. And in Canada, there are a couple other organizations. So um, one of them is CADAC, C-A-D-D-A-C. And then the other one is CADRA, uh, C-A-D-D-R-A. Um, and those are places to find local providers. But, you know, ask around do your research, educate yourself about ADHD. The more that you learn, definitely the better off you're going to be. And that's for both partners. Well, you know, we like to make our acronyms so complicated in Canada. So I'll make sure to link to those. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. So many important insights for folks who are dealing, living with a partner who has ADHD, as well as for all couples. I mean, all of these insights are quite universally applicable. So thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Well, my pleasure. And I think that, and they absolutely are. Like I sort of have a line, ADHD doesn't invent new problems. It just exacerbates the universal struggles that every couple has. So mm -hmm. there is hope, but you do need to take it seriously and work on it. But the, you know, the benefits are there if you do. That sums it up perfectly. Thank you so much. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you as always to Desire Resorts for supporting this podcast. We'll be back next week with a whole new episode. Have a great week, folks. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life.